The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. I don't know if I can compete with that much cuteness. Uh, it's going to be downhill from here, just an FYI. Um, we are in the middle of our Ephesians uh, sermon series. If you haven't gotten one of the Ephesians books, we've still got some in the back. It's kind of a cool way where on one side uh, we've got the actual scripture and then the other side there's a journal so you can kind of take some notes. Uh, it's again, it's just a resource that we have for you and we've got more in the back if you want some. But before we jump in to Ephesians chapter 5, I invite you guys to bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. Uh, you are a God that is constantly raising up people uh, and sending them out. Lord, to uh, imitate and reflect your love, your sacrifice. Lord, we pray that as we dive into Ephesians chapter 5, Lord, that we again uh, see your truth, we see you, uh, and we see the life that you're calling us to as children of God and children of light. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So as I said, we are in the middle, actually the tail end of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul has been writing to this church in Ephesus, and he's been building one chapter after another about this plan that God has. Chapter 1, he says God has a plan that was set in motion before he started creating the world. Chapter 2 says that plan doesn't mean that we have to work our way up to God, but that God was going to come down and he was going to work for us. He was going to sacrifice himself for us. He was going to give us this grace, this divine favor. And then he was going to send us out through chapter 2 and chapter 3 to be agents of forgiveness and agents of reconciliation. And then last week we looked about how God gives us each gifts, unique divine favor that's equipping us to love like he loves, to forgive like he forgives to reconcile like he reconciles. And I said last week, if you want to know practical, how do I live out my faith? How do I follow Jesus? Well, once you get into Ephesians chapter 4, it gets really practical and it stays really practical in Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, he uses this word again, therefore, and I've been kind of highlighting that every time we see it in the words of Paul because that therefore, whenever you see that, he is using a Greek word that is tying together a next step. He says, everything that came before is now going to help us understand where we are going now. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This first sentence, these first two verses are going to frame everything else that comes in Ephesians chapter 5. And I cannot emphasize this enough. This being an imitator or imitating Jesus is going to help us look through the lens of everything else Paul is trying to get us to do as Christ followers. And there's a big truth here beyond even Ephesians. That if you are ever reading scripture and you kind of get caught up in figuring out what is God really saying here in this verse, right? Maybe it's telling you to do something that just really feels off or culturally it doesn't make sense anymore. Having the Jesus glasses on of looking at all scripture through the life of Jesus, through the love of Jesus and through the sacrifice of Jesus, while it doesn't necessarily answer every question about the Bible, it makes it a lot easier to understand where God's trying to go with something. And we're going to see that specifically towards the end of Ephesians chapter 5, but we're going to start off just with Paul laying the groundwork. Hey, 
Because God loves you so much, because he's done so much for you, because he's forgiven you, because he loves you, and because he sent you out, imitate him. Because you're not going to get a better role model. You're not going to get a better reflection of who we should be seeking after than Jesus. So imitate Jesus. Goes on though, and it says, but sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness, must not be even named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filth, uh, filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you can be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These aren't necessarily the most happy ideas in Scripture. Uh, One of the unique things about going through an entire book of the Bible is there are certain verses that I will skip around just because I like to be the uplifting guy. I like to be the positive guy. And you read through here, and Paul really doesn't mince any words, right? If we're going through Scripture, if we're going to go through all of it, it's like, no, there is such thing as right and wrong. There is such thing as light and darkness. And in our world today, we can kind of muddy that sometimes because it makes things uncomfortable. And it's easier just to kind of say, eh, everyone's going to do their own thing and that's totally okay. And while there is no scripture, in fact, scripture goes pretty far out of its way to say those inside the church should not be judging those outside of the church, right? Jesus goes out of his way to say, hey, none of you should be picking up stones against someone else because all of you in your own way have been the sons of disobedience that Paul was just talking about. But the fact that we're not supposed to judge outside of the church doesn't mean that there isn't such thing as right and wrong and that God doesn't care about it. We have a God of love. We have a God of peace, a God of joy. And anything that takes that love or that joy or that peace away is an enemy of God. And so Paul says, guys, we've been called to something better than sexual immorality. We've been called to something better than talking like the rest of the world does, treating each other like the rest of the world does. We talked about last week, about the two categories, devouring and nurturing. And really, that's what this is getting after, right? Because when we think about sexual immorality, it's saying, I'm going to devour this person, right? When we talk about foolish or coarse talk, we're talking about tearing someone down for our own benefit. And what we see in Scripture and what we certainly see in Ephesians is that we have a God who's not trying to get us to, vo- to devour one another. The world's really good at that. We're all really good at that. He goes, no, I want you to nurture one another. He says, I built you to do good works. I built you to bring out the best in other people. And throughout all of Ephesians, you have this compare and contrast that Paul does where he keeps on saying the reason why we have this God of light, the reason why it's so important is because if you're not on the team and the side of light, you end up devouring everyone else. In fact, you end up devouring yourself. Paul says, no, 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 imitate Christ. Live like Christ. He goes on, he says, so walk as children of light. That song we sang, right? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that we do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes light is anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Again, he makes this compare and contrast between light and darkness. And he says, bring things into the light, which is something that makes all of us uncomfortable, right? All of us have some area in our life where we would prefer to be kept hidden, right? Something that we're doing, something that we're saying, some past decision or choice that's still reverberating into today. And we're scared of it. We're scared of other people knowing about it. And what Paul says is, no, guys, Christ's light can redeem anything, can redeem any situation. And that doesn't make what you did okay or what you're doing okay, but it's a promise that no matter where you are, God's light is powerful enough to shine and to start to make beautiful things grow. And then he drops this word, and this is one of my favorite scriptures, where it says, making the best use of time. Most translations will say, making the best out of every opportunity. This moment by moment saying, what is the best I can do right now? Because sometimes when we think about the plans of God, the will of God, we think more longer term, right? What job should I take? What house should I buy? Who should I marry? Whatever the question is. And the reality is we have a God who is much more concerned with the immediate present. Here and now, how do we make the best out of every opportunity, every conversation, every handshake, every opportunity to connect with someone, to bring out the best in someone? Whether it's via a text message, whether it's someone that we're at work with, how do we make the best out of that moment in the present? Because what's ironic is if we're working on the present now, the future takes care of itself. But if we're so fixated on what we're supposed to do in the future, we leave the present behind. And we miss those opportunities to love. We miss those opportunities to bring joy to someone else, to nurture someone else, because we're so caught up in the future that we miss what God is doing in the now. So I love that. Make the best out of every opportunity. Learn to figure out what God's plan is here and now. When you're talking to your mom, when you're hanging out with your kids, when you're in the car driving and stuck in traffic, what's the best thing you can do in that moment? And when we stick there, we actually end up in a healthier place in the future than when we're worried or concerned about the future. Ephesians goes on. He says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the, what the will of the Lord is. So don't get drunk with wine, for it's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He starts off, he says, don't get drunk, don't fill yourself with wine or the things of the world. Right? 
Most things in the world in and of themselves aren't bad, right? Whether it's alcohol or food or entertainment. But all of us at one time can try to fill ourselves with those things, right? And if you need something to fill joy or to feel filled, you've created an idol, right? And so we binge Netflix shows until we just go into this numbness state, right? Or we drink too much so we can avoid our problems. Or we eat too much. Or we go online and we buy something else. Paul says, guys, this compare and contrast is not about being filled with what the world can offer, but to be filled with the Spirit. The things of God, the story of God, the love of God, the fruit of the Spirit. And when you get filled up with that, something beautiful happens, something powerful happens. That fruit does what all natural fruit does. Like Fruit is literally something that grows, that has seeds, that then helps something else grow. That fruit helps nurture and nourish those around you. And ironically, when those around you are nourished and nurtured, they start to nurture and nourish you back. And while you don't necessarily get that immediate fix of, do you want to watch that next Netflix show, right? Or my personal favorite, when Netflix asks you, are you still watching, and you just feel judged by Netflix. Have you guys ever got that? When you've watched a show so much, and it's like, are you still watching, or have you passed out or left the room? And you're like, yes, Netflix, just no. I don't need you to judge me, right? Right? Like, Netflix in and of itself isn't bad, right? Enjoying a TV show, enjoying a glass of wine, enjoying whatever the world has to offer you in and of itself. But if you need it to be filled then you've replaced God with something else. I was talking to someone uh, last week, and they just made the comment that anything else that you need other than God to fill you can be taken away. Think about that for a moment. If you need a paycheck to be filled and to be secure, that can be taken away. If you need a house, that can be taken away. If you need a family, that can be taken away. If you need wine, if you need Netflix, all of that stuff can be taken away from you. But when it's God that you need, that can never be taken away. That foundation, that strength, that spirit is something worth building our life around. Because no matter what circumstances come, in the joy and in the pain, you're on a firm foundation. And then we get to what I'm going to say is probably the most controversial or misunderstood part of Ephesians chapter 5. So Paul's going to get into the role of men and women, husbands and wives. And he's going to use some verbiage that typically every time I read it, I wince a little bit. Right? Uh, And so we're going to unpack some of this. But to understand this scripture, there's two things we got to understand. First and foremost, what I said in the beginning, that, that therefore imitate Christ, is the lens at which we look at this next section of Scripture. So understanding that he started off by saying, imitate Christ, and now we're going to unpack what this looks like. And the second aspect of this is understanding the difference between prescriptive and descriptive commands of Scripture. So a prescriptive demand of Scripture is, thou shalt not murder. 
That's a non-negotiable in Scripture. That is something you're not supposed to do. Thou shalt not steal. That is a prescriptive. Scripture prescribes you and me to say, don't do this. Right? This is bad. This is going to be destructive. This is going to devour that thing that God wants to nurture. Descriptive commands in Scripture are not talking about, hey, do this in this situation at all times, but it's describing the life and the tenor and the tone and the posture of a Christian. And so trying to figure out in Scripture what is prescriptive, do this or don't do that, and what is descriptive, this is how you're supposed to live, this is the quality, this is the feel that it's supposed to have. Does that make sense? Those two different things. And when we're talking about cultural issues... Descriptive is typically the safest space to be when talking about the Bible. There's in First and Second Timothy, Paul is talking about the role of women, and he talks about head coverings. And he talks about how women should not show up to a church service without a hat. Now, looking around this room right now, if we were saying that was a prescriptive, this is what you're all supposed to do, ladies, all of you have failed the test, right? But that's not a prescriptive text. At that time, in that culture, it was shameful for women not to cover their head. It was a cultural thing. And Paul's like, hey, you're creating some dissonance in this. And what we find in Romans is Paul says, or 1 Corinthians, I apologize. He says, actually, as Christians, actually, I, as Paul the Apostle, I will become all things to all people. I will change any culture. To the Jews, I will become like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I will become like a Gentile. I will do anything to not get in the way of the gospel. Right? So prescriptive and descriptive. All right. So with that, he starts off and he says, and we are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Already I am not liking this scripture. Forget about husbands. Forget about wives. I don't want to submit to any of you. All right? That is not my natural predisposition, is to be like, yeah, I want to submit to someone else's authority. I buck buck freaking Netflix authority over me, right? Are you still watching? How are you to tell me? And yet what we see is when we look and try to imitate Christ, Christ actually submitted to almost everybody. That didn't mean he stopped talking about what was true, but he didn't demand his rights as an obligation And again, looking through the lens of Christ, which he is about to go into, that's going to frame where we go. And so he says, so wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, at its just face value, if this is prescriptive, this is an uncomfortable text, especially in 2019. But in understanding to imitate Christ, and in understanding that even before this text starts, it says that we're all supposed to submit to one another, one another out of reverence for Christ, it changes and helps frame what Paul is trying to get here. A little bit of count, count, cultural context. Christianity was transformative and countercultural in how it treated women. Zero BC, if you were not married, you had no rights, you had no legal authority as a female. The church shows up 
and start saying things like, there is no such thing within Christianity as male or as female. There is no classification of one is closer to God. And so women were literally being liberated by Christianity, but that started to create some cultural dissidence. In the same way that the head coverings thing was creating some cultural dissidence, women's new roles, women's new rights, was creating cultural dissonance in the church, right? Because all of a sudden, women who weren't allowed to speak were given authority and privilege to speak. And it was a good thing, but they were trying to work through it. And so in working through it, Paul says, hey, guys, become all things to all people to have order. And so he says that we are actually supposed to submit to one another and in relationships, spouses are supposed to spit, submit to one another. And hear me clearly when I'm saying this. Spouses, not one gender of spouse. Spouses are called to submit to one another. That's how the verse starts. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? But then it starts talking through relationships. And again, he connects it into Jesus, where he says, Jesus submitted so we submit. Jesus submitted, so we imitate, and we get healthier relationships. All right? It goes on, though, and it says, Husbands, love your wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. He starts off by saying, imitate Christ's sacrificial submission. And he follows it up by saying, imitate Christ's sacrificial love. Right? It's all through the lens of Jesus. And let me tell you right now, Marriages in America need to learn how to submit to one another better. Marriages in America need to learn how to love one another better. And I will start with my marriage. My wife and I are still working through this. We're still learning how to do this because it's not natural for us. What's natural is I'm going to demand my rights. I'm going to demand your obligations to me. And I'm going to stand here and make sure that I get them. And what Christ is saying is, guys, that's not the posture that God is calling us towards. That in imitating Christ, we actually sacrifice our rights. And we have sacrificial love to nurture this other person. And what I love about that is how Paul says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. He says, guys, when you love your spouse in this sacrificial way, he goes, you actually are benefited. When you're willing to try to bring out the best in this person, and they're willing to bring out the best in you, it becomes this organic, self-nurturing, self-sustaining organism. And that's what Paul is trying to get at in Husbands and Wives. But then he directly, again, ties it back into who Jesus is. He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, Christ sacrificially submitted to the will of the Father when he went to the cross. That, That wasn't what he wanted to do. We know that. In fact, the last conversation we have between him and God is him literally crying to the Father. If there is any other way for this to happen, please let it be. But I will submit to your authority. Christ submitted on our behalf, and he sacrificially loved us on our behalf. Because he said, you're part of me. You're part of my community, my family, my body. And what's best for you is what I will decide is what's best for me. Again, Paul frames this entire conversation in imitating the life and the posture and the description of who our God is in Jesus. Which is why he ends... By saying, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I will say this is one aspect where I would put this in the descriptive side of males and females. Guys have a harder time with the love side, in general. Women tend to have a harder time with the respect side, in general. And yet, to both of us, he says, love and submission and seeing us as the body, seeing us as the same team, that if I'm bringing out the best in you, if I am nurturing you, that's actually going to be healthy for me. That's what Paul is getting at. He's saying when we imitate Christ in that, when we nurture and cherish and nourish those that God brings into our lives, And our spouse being that key person, he goes, something beautiful happens. Something powerful happens. Something beyond our own strength happens. And that's what he's getting at in Ephesians chapter 5. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for being a God who, even when we are in full rebellion, even when we are choosing to live in the darkness, whatever that darkness is, Lord, that you are still fighting for us, that you are still inviting us into a relationship with you and into a relationship with your family. Lord, I pray that uh, we could live as children of light, in the light, even with all of our warts, even with all of our sin, Lord, that we are able to bring that out in the open. Lord, be in a community that is able to forgive us and love us and nurture us. And Lord, we pray for that specifically in our marriages. Lord, that we might be spouses who nurture our spouse. Spouses who submit as you submitted. Spouses who love sacrificially because you are a God who sacrificed all for the love you had for us. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of worship and reflection, and that will lead us into a time for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.